open our Bibles together to John chapter 11. We will look at verses 45 of John 11 through verse 11 of chapter 12. And please listen as I read God's word and listen as is appropriate for the reading of the word of God. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, 
whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So read the words of the living God. Our Father, we ask you now to fill us with your spirit. Teach us what you have for us from this text. And may we be those who don't only come together on Sunday morning to proclaim our faith in you, but may we have the boldness to proclaim it always and everywhere. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So on Thursday, Krista and I celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary. Thank you. Actually, we didn't celebrate. Um, she was here with the music team, and I was with the elders not celebrating my anniversary. Uh, we'll celebrate tomorrow, but we recognized our 27th anniversary. So Thursday morning, uh, we had the family back together. As many of you know, uh, my daughters were away this summer, so this is the first week we were all back together for 13 weeks. And uh, so we gathered together, and we talked about being married and 27 years and all that. And, and you know, most of you know me. You're not uh, surprised to hear that I started asking questions about marriage to our kids. And I said something about why do you think uh, some marriages are stronger than others? And my kids answered immediately, well, because they're not selfish. And I uh, thought, well, I'm done here. That's really all I, need to, all I need to do. In fact, one of my kids said, yeah, I think we pretty much got that one, Dad. We understand selfishness is the marriage problem. And, and it is. That's all there is, selfishness. That's not just the marriage problem. That's the sin problem. Every sin that any of us commits boils down to us wanting to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. Now, we have different labels, different names, different uh, outworkings of, of selfishness, but at the, at the end of the day, it all boils down to, instead of pleasing God, we please ourselves. Some of the uh, expressions of this are fairly harmless. When you're driving on the highway and somebody cuts you off, what do you think? Ugh, jerk. Don't you see there's plenty of space behind me? You could just let me pass. You're just thinking about yourself. And then when you pull over in front of somebody else, and they honk at you, you're like, jerk, don't you see? I need to get over. See, see what we do there? Everything is about ourselves. That's how we live. But those are fairly harmless. You know, a little horn honking never hurt anybody, right? I hope that's true. Uh, I mean, not because I do it, because I know that you all do it. But maybe the things that drive men to great sin and selfishness more than anything else are power and money. When a man has power or money, he has a very hard time relinquishing that power or even the money. And it can drive people to crazy expressions and acts of sinfulness. We need, the, the scripture warns against greed, warns against striving with ambition, trying to be the boss, trying to be at the top, because there is so much temptation to hang on to it at all costs, even when you should let go. What we're going to see here in our text today is two different groups of people 
who because of their desire to hang on to their power and their money, commit the greatest sins that have ever been committed. The first is this group of Jewish leaders, the priests and the Pharisees. So we know the story. We've just finished. Last time we looked at John, almost a month ago now, we saw Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That is the event immediately preceding our text today. Here was a man who died, who they laid in a tomb, and for four days he was rotting in that tomb. And Jesus spoke the word, spoke his name, and that man came to life. What would you expect the response to be? Seems like the only rational response is, whoa. We have just encountered a being, a man that's in a different category from any man we've ever seen before. Think about what he's already done. He has turned water into wine. He's walked across the top of water. He took a man who was blind from birth and gave him sight. He took a couple of fish sandwiches and fed 20,000 people. He came to another man who was lame for 38 years and said, get up and walk, and the man got up and walked. And now he speaks to a corpse and that corpse comes back to life and lives among them again. You would think everybody would fall on their face in honor and worship of this man. At the very least, they would trust what he has to say because nobody does those things. Remember way back in John 3, at least one of the Pharisees got it right. Nicodemus showed up and said, Lord, we know you could not do these things if you were not sent by God. So how do the Jewish leaders respond to the raising of Lazarus from the dead? I mean, even at a pragmatic level, this is great. We're going to march down there to, to Roman headquarters in, in, in Rome, and we're going to fight Caesar and his armies. And, all, and we're, going, we're guaranteed to win because this guy will just come along, and every time one of our soldiers dies, you just say, get up, get back in the game. I mean, it's a surefire way to defeat their enemies. But no, that's not the response. They pulled together the council, the Sanhedrin, the highest authority of the Jewish people, about 70 members on the Sanhedrin, uh, ruled over by the priests who were all Sadducees. I'm not going to tell that Sunday school joke. They were sad, you see, because Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. So Jesus had just thrust them into a crisis of cognitive dissonance. We don't believe in resurrection, and yet this man was dead and now he's alive. And the rest of the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and scribes. And what do they do at this council? What's the topic of conversation? It's this What are we doing? If we let this man go on like this, 
everybody's going to believe in him. If we let him continue to multiply fishes and loaves, if we let him continue to heal the sick, if we allow him to continue to raise the dead, everybody's going to believe in him. Is that shocking? Or are you so familiar with this passage that you're not appropriately shocked? How is it possible they respond this way? If we let him go, all men will believe, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now we're getting to the heart of the issue. Now we're getting to it. The Pax Romana, right? The, the, the peace of Rome. This is what mattered to Caesar more than anything else. This is how he controlled everybody and everything. Maintain peace. Any insurrection, any uproar, any fighting, you got to squash it. And Herod and the Jewish leaders, they were basically puppet kings. They were allowed a certain amount of freedom to rule over the Jewish people as long as they did their job to keep the Jewish people quiet, calm, and subservient to Caesar. And so this Sanhedrin gathers together and they say, if this guy keeps doing this, all these Jews are going to follow him. And there's going to be division, and there's going to be fighting, and they're going to make him king. Remember, they've already tried once to forcibly make Jesus king. We'll see next week. They do it again. Hosanna, Hosanna, Palm Sunday. He's the king. And these Jewish leaders realize if the Jewish people make him king, Caesar's going to come down, and he's going to try to snuff this out, and we will lose our people and our power. Power-hungry rulers say, we have to do something about this. And Caiaphas, the chief priest, put in position by God to oversee the people of Israel. The Messiah shows up, and he says, you all are missing the obvious reaction here. Not worship him, kill him. You guys don't know what you're talking about. What should we do? It's obvious. Take him out. That'll solve all of our problems. Take him out. Nobody's going to follow him if he's dead. Can you imagine? Of course, for the last two or three weeks in our nation, the news has been preoccupied with the death of Jeffrey Epstein. I'm sure you all are familiar with the story. It is a remarkable one. Here's this man that, as far as we know, has committed great atrocities and crimes. Apparently, we can trust any of the reports, he got away with a lot of it. His original sentence was much less severe than it should have been. But just in the last couple of months, some investigative reporters have sued and got some documents uh, released that would now mean that he would probably spend the rest of his life in prison. So they put him in prison or in, in jail, waiting his trial. More documents are released, apparently with implications for other high-profile politicians. He gets beat up in jail. 
He attempts suicide. Within two weeks, he is released from suicide watch, put in a cell by himself, a cell that is supposed to be suicide-proof. The guards fall asleep, and he is able to end his life and not face trial. And half of America is convinced that this was not suicide, but there was a plot from people who were implicated, who were feeling uh, threatened that they were going to be found guilty of heinous crimes and they would ultimately be brought to justice as well, and that somehow they got the entire prison system in on it so they could take him out. I don't know, and neither do you. We don't know what actually happened to Jeffrey Epstein. But here's the thing. The fact that we live in a culture where we think that's actually possible, where we think there are government officials or prior government officials, prior presidents, prior candidates for presidency who have the power and the will to take over an entire system and kill the man who would expose them. The fact that we even believe that's possible shows us the corruption that exists in our nation. The fact that we even think it's possible that somebody would do that. You see what I'm getting at? I'm, I'm saying set aside all the political piece of this for a moment. We live among a people where there's at least part of us that thinks, yeah, I could see somebody doing that. I could see a political system, a party, a leader killing a man in prison to save their own skin. We don't know if that's true or not. We may never know this side of Judgment Day what actually happened. But it wouldn't shock us if all of the most extreme conspiracy theories were proven true. It wouldn't shock us. In fact, my guess is some of you in this room right now are absolutely convinced it's true. It won't shock us. It shouldn't shock us because it's already happened. This is who man is. Men are willing to go to extreme measures to kill their political enemies. Again, my point is not to talk about what's going on in our politics. That's not the point. The point is this is who mankind is. And these Pharisees and chief priests, Caiaphas and the rest, these are people in charge of God's people. And in the name of God, they put a price on Jesus' head. Take him out. He's a threat to our power, to our nation. Mankind is corrupt. The heart is desperately wicked above all things. We've got to stop him or everyone's going to believe in him. And so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Well, the news got out. Jesus became aware of this plan and he avoids Jerusalem for the time being. And he goes to hang out with his disciples. 
It's Passover. Everybody, all the Jews are obligated to go down to Jerusalem, so he heads that direction. The report was out. They got to seize him. Jesus goes to the house of Lazarus, whom he had raised, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, are there, and they're gathered around the table eating, and Mary takes this expensive ointment and pours it on Jesus. It's a whole year's wages. That's how much this is worth. I've told you before that uh, this family was very wealthy. We knew that because of the, uh, the, the amount of people that accompanied them to the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, here's another reason why we know that. This was a, a year's wages. Uh, if, you, if you think just in uh, an average of today, think $50,000, give or take. Can you imagine? First of all, I can't imagine a bottle of perfume that's worth $50,000. But she poured it on Jesus, and Judas gets mad. What is she doing? What is she thinking? We could have sold that for $50,000 and used that money to help the poor. And John tells us it was all a sham. It's all a lie. Judas had been hanging out with Jesus for all three of his ministry years. He was one of the hand-selected disciples, and he got himself in the position of the treasurer. So if that money, if that, if that ointment is sold for money, that money goes in the treasury, now Judas has access, and he can take his cut whenever he wants to. That's what he wanted. But he pretends as though he's concerned for the poor. Can you imagine Someone treating another person like that? Can you imagine someone trying to deceive Jesus like this? There might be some comfort for us in this, comfort as a pastor, as ministers. If Jesus picked this guy and he walked with Jesus and heard everything Jesus said and saw all that he did and his heart was still, still hardened, that it does help, uh, help us not feel the weight of responsibility and blame when people in our midst are not, do not remain faithful. Because if the Lord does not do the work, if he doesn't change the heart, then even Jesus himself and his teaching and his example was not enough to bring this man to righteousness. The heart has to be transformed. And Judas's wasn't. sure most of you saw on Facebook uh, the last couple of days, our, one of our own brothers, one of our elders who owns a business, and the smear campaign that has uh, been levied against him. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should look it up. But our brother Ben's company, someone has come out against him and slandering, charging him with things that are, are absolutely not true. We, we know Ben, I've known Ben since he was, well, I was going to say this tall, but he's always been really tall. But, I mean, 20 years he's been part of the church, actually longer than that. I've been in the church 20 years, and he's been here the whole time. I knew him when he was a young man. Watch him grow into the man that he is. My son worked for him this summer. Many of you have worked for him. A great man of integrity. Why would somebody who calls himself a Christian try to coerce him and blackmail him into giving money that they don't deserve because there are evil people in the world, even people who claim the name of Christ. 
And here's one, Judas, lying through his teeth, that money should have been sold, or that thing should have been sold, money given to the poor? No, he just wants to pad his own pockets. All right, so enough of the bad news. There's another character in the story. Mary. Mary. Think about what this woman's been through just in the last week or two. She's already expressed her devotion to Jesus. Remember, Jesus showed up after Lazarus died. Jesus showed up and Mary comes out to him and says, Lord, we know you could have saved him if you were here. Even in the midst of her grief, she did not reject Christ. She didn't blame Jesus. She said, we know if you had been here, you have the power. You are the Christ. And you could have saved him if you wanted to. Jesus says, yes, but I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, I know. Then, she has to go through the turmoil of reconciling the fact that her brother shall never see him again. He's dead. Jesus could have saved him, but he didn't. He wasn't here. And now her brother is dead. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. I told you, if you trusted in me, if you believed in me, you would see the glory of God. And that's when he calls out to the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus got up and walked. And now Mary is elated. Her brother lives. He did it. He didn't prevent the death. The first time he delivered him from death. Oh, rejoice, sing. Life is happy. This is wonderful. Oh, can you imagine? The celebration, the excitement, anticipation. Oh, Lord, Jesus, Messiah, this is great. And then she hears the reports that the Jews have a bounty on Jesus' head. Jesus, don't go down there. They're going to try to kill you. And Jesus says, I have to go down there. Don't you remember? I've been telling you all along. That's why I came. I came to give my life as a ransom. I was born to die. I'm the lamb of, the, of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. That's why I'm here. I have to go. And now her heart is broken again. Can you imagine that? Lord, no. I mean, the disciples did that too, but for a very different reason. For the disciples, it was disbelief. No, we're not going to let that happen to you. You know, Peter's famous words. Lord, come here. Stop talking like that. You're not going to die. We won't let you die. I will give my life for you. I will take a bullet for you. Or a sword, at least. We won't let that happen. And they didn't believe him. They didn't understand what he was saying. But it sure sounds like Mary got it. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. So they're sitting around the table eating, She's looking at her brother Lazarus, and then she looks to her Savior, and she is overcome with emotion, knowing that any day now, he's going to be put to death. And she's weeping, joy 
sadness, we're not told, but she has to respond somehow. And so she takes this oil that would have been used for burial, and she says, I can't wait till you're dead to do this. I have to do it now. And when we put all the gospel accounts together, she poured it over his whole body, head to toe. And she's just weeping over the fact that he's going to die. And I, I guess, I don't know how this works. Had longer hair one time, but not long enough hair to ever do this. There's oil all over him. And, and remember, they didn't have nice shoes back then. He, they wore sandals everywhere, so his feet are, are nasty with dirt and crud. And she pours the oil on him. It's like, I got to wipe it off, and I guess there's no towel nearby, so she just takes her hair to wipe all the yuck off of his feet. With her hair. It's not like they had a shower in the other room. Uh, and, you know, when we're just reading, you know when you're doing your Bible reading plan, you read through this, there, there's a part of you that just goes, ew, I, uh, why the hair? Surely there was a towel in the house somewhere. But see, that would be thinking rationally, as though this were all calculated and premeditated. No, it's a response in the moment to her heart grieving and heavy that this man who's done so much good, this man who raised her brother from the dead, this man who is the Messiah, the King, the one they've been waiting for all of their lives, in fact, all of Jewish history, this man is going to die. And she can't contain her emotion, and she weeps, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Why? Because she loves him. Because she's devoted to him, because she's grieving for him, and because she wanted to do something to show honor and adoration to this one who is her king, her Messiah, and her Lord. $50,000, boom, used up like that. But that's not how she thought of it. She just thought, I have to do something to show how much I love my Savior. Jesus says, leave her alone. Let her do this. You always have poor. There's always the opportunity to give to the poor. That's never going to stop. But you don't always have me. There's a time and a place, of course, to sacrificially take care of the poor. But there is a time to stop everything else and just focus on the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ and to focus on him. It's not wasted money when we give to the work of Jesus or give time to exalt Jesus. When we come together here and sing our praise and talk about Jesus, that is not wasted time. He is worthy of our thoughts and our expressions of adoration. There will always be other things to do with our money and our time, but we must Give first place to Jesus. At least there's one person in this story who loved Jesus and who believed Jesus and who followed Jesus and gave everything for him. The Jewish leaders, not so much. In fact, did you notice at the end of the section, 
Not only did they have a bounty on Jesus' head, but we got to kill Lazarus too. Because Lazarus is a walking billboard for Jesus. Everybody knew the story. He was dead. Now he's alive. We can't let him live because everywhere he goes, he's just walking around. Look, I was dead and Jesus raised me. Mankind is corrupt. But Caiaphas, the high priest who made this, this declaration, we've got to take this man out, spoke better than he knew. John, the, the gospel writer here, is using a literary form called irony. Now, we call a lot of things ironic that are not truly ironic. Uh, irony in literature is something that the audience knows the readers know, but the characters don't know. So, Caiaphas says, take that man out, take Jesus out, so he won't be a problem for us anymore. But John says, Caiaphas didn't understand the real truth of what he is saying, but let me tell you what that real truth was. Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is what Jesus came to do. Came to this earth to die for our sins, not just for Israel, but for all of us who put our faith in him. You realize even Mary's expression of devotion, her, her, her gift and her weeping and her tears and all that, that would have been meaningless if Jesus had not died. Because as much as she loved him and honored him, if Jesus doesn't die, then Mary is still in her sins. And when she died, she would stand before God at judgment and she would stand in her own works and the only just verdict of a holy God would have been you're guilty. And what she may, or, we don't know how much she understood of this, but what she would come to understand later, what the disciples would come to understand later, and what we understand now is Jesus had to die because all of us are going to die someday and stand before God at judgment. And the only hope we have of forgiveness is that someone else took our punishment. That's the heart of the good news, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we believe. All of us are going to stand before God at judgment. And if we stand in our own works, our own lives, our own testimony of what we've done and not done, every single one of us will be judged guilty. But Jesus came and he said, if you believe in me, if you trust me, if you follow me, then God will take my righteousness, my obedience, and he will give it to you. And he will take your sinfulness and put it on my account. So that that cross event, that time 2,000 years ago when Jesus did die, and when he hung on that cross... God takes our sin and puts it on Jesus and punishes our sin in Jesus. 
and says to you and me, you're not guilty. The truth is, everybody is going to be held accountable. Whatever the true story of Jeffrey Epstein is, as far as how it played out, he will stand before God Almighty and give an account for his life. And unless he cried out in his last moments for forgiveness, he will be judged guilty for all of his wickedness. And regardless of what other political things were going on and how much evil is enacted by the political parties, nobody gets away with anything, ever. Either Jesus takes your punishment or you will. That's true of every human being who's ever lived. The flip side is every human being, no matter how awful any of us have been, the worst, most grievous sinners you can think of, Everybody who genuinely calls out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, believes in his death and resurrection, and commits to follow him, every single one is forgiven of all of our sins, and we're declared righteous before God on that day. At least there's one in this story who got it. And my prayer is there's a room full of people here that get it. And the call for us is to be like Mary, Simple faith, genuine faith, and a willingness to give everything in honor and worship of Jesus. And if there's anyone here this morning who does not believe this good news, today can be the day. I urge you, call out to Jesus today. Ask him for forgiveness. Tell him you believe in his death and resurrection, and he will forgive you, and you can have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we sing this final song, we will stand amazed once again. death and resurrection of Jesus the Nazarene. Fill our hearts with joy. May we be like Mary and give our lives, our money, everything for you. Lord, if there's anyone here that our hearts are more like the, the, the Jews, more like Judas, that we're, we're using Christianity for some kind of self-gain, would you convict hearts, bring true repentance? And anyone here who does not claim the name of Christ, Lord, would you grant faith today? Open eyes and ears to hear these things. The truth of the gospel, that it would bear fruit in their hearts. And they would understand for the first time in their lives what it means to be forgiven and right with you. Lord, we can't make that happen. We can't force someone to respond. We can't present such a logical argument that people will be compelled, but your spirit can transform hearts. Would you do so? And we will give you all the praise and the glory.